This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy 6. We have not forgotten or left behind numbers. We will start numbers next week. Someone was mourning to me the possibility of not getting numbers. <laughs> I'll give you numbers. I'll give you numbers. Deuteronomy 6, the book of Deuteronomy, let me set the context here. book of Deuteronomy is a series of sermons that Moses preached to the people of Israel as they were standing on the outskirts of the promised land. A series of sermons he preaches to the people of Israel as they stand on the outskirts of the promised land, 40 years after God had saved them from Egypt. And in these series of sermons, Moses calls the people to be faithful and obedient to the law that God had given them at Sinai. And in these sermons, there is a very strong connection between obedience to the law and experiencing long-lasting flourishing in the land. So we're going to look at a portion of that this morning. I want to read Deuteronomy 6, 1 to 19. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, that you may multiply greatly. As the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as 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 you tested him at Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may go well with you. That you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. Deuteronomy 6 is all about the greatest commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul and with all your might. Deuteronomy 6 is all about that that topic. Um, Musical artists such as Red Tape Riot, uh, Lindsey Sterling would have us believe that love is a feeling. But the text indicates otherwise. You probably noticed this as we read through it. Deuteronomy 6, love for God is expressed in concrete acts of obedience. This is what led Walter Brueggemann to say this, and I think rightly so. One must not romanticize the Deuteronomic use of the term love as though it were primarily a feeling or even aptitude. It concerns rather practical acts of obedience in every sphere of daily life, acts that Moses will soon line out. Now, you know who else picks up this idea of love for God being expressed in obedience? Jesus himself. In fact, when you look Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, Jesus quotes from the book of Deuteronomy more than any other Old Testament book. You can see that in his thinking. Here are a few quotations where Jesus links love for God with obedience. John 14, if you love me, keep my commands. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. You can see Jesus himself is linking love for him with obedience to him. This is what's happening in Deuteronomy. Now, Deuteronomy 6 is the thesis chapter. It's the thesis statement. Loving God with heart, soul, and might. Deuteronomy 12 through 16 unpacks what Deuteronomy 6 states. Deuteronomy 12 to 16 fleshes out what it looks like to love God with heart, soul, and might. So we're going to dabble in that this morning. We're going to flesh out what it is that what it is that, that's meant by loving God with heart, soul, and might by looking at some chapters a little later on in the book. And through that, we're going we're to work to flesh out three life arenas where we can grow to express our love for God. Three areas of life where we can grow to express our love for God. The three are these, and we'll work through them. Sunday worship, theological discernment, and everyday living. Okay, Sunday worship, theological discernment, and everyday living. First, Sunday worship. If you have your Bibles, now let's flip to Deuteronomy 12, where the unpacking of love for God with heart, soul, and might begins. Let me read the first seven verses of chapter 12. These are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods. On the high mountains, on the hills, and under every green tree, you shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Okay, so listen, there are people living in the land Israel is about to take over. Israel's new home is already a 
habitation for other people. And in these verses, you hear God's concern that Israel may be tempted to run after their gods. You hear the concern in the language. God says, tear down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars, burn their asherim with fire, chop down the carved images of their gods. The people who already live in Canaan had a formalized system for how they worship their gods. And God is concerned that the Canaanite system of worship may be tempting for the people of Israel. So he's saying, when you enter, destroy those things. How they worship is not going to be how you worship. Now, as modern-day readers of this story, I'm guessing at some point you've had this rolling around in your head. Why would the people of Israel find Canaanite worship tempting? That's got to be a question you've asked. Why would they find it tempting? Especially after all they've seen and all they've experienced. The three, three of the most uh, popular gods in Canaanite society was Baal, who was the rain god, storm god, living in an agrarian society. Rain was life-giving. Dagon was the grain god. Successful agricultural year was in everybody's best interest. Asherim was a female fertility goddess. Having children ensured longevity. Three of the most popular gods within Canaanite worship. Why would Israel find any of that interesting? Well, you have to get underneath the, uh, the mindset of Canaanite worship and the way the system was set up in order to find out why. And I'm not going to bore you with, with all the details, but I want to give you the bottom line to it. Five reasons Israel found idolatry attractive. Okay, here are five reasons why Israel found idolatry attractive and why God is so concerned about them as they enter this land. First, it was a self-serving system. In the ancient world, the gods, though they were powerful, needed humans to feed them. Sacrifices were brought to the gods because they were hungry. Consequently, you can get what you want from the gods simply by bringing them the sacrifices they need. Ancient idolatry, the Canaanite system of worship, was the preeminent system of, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. If getting Asherah to bless me with children is just a matter of saying the right incantation or presenting the right sacrifice, who wouldn't want that? It was a self-serving system. Second, it was easy Sure, you need to show up and offer your sacrifice, but ancient religion demanded little in the way of ethical standards or personal sacrifice. To be a good Canaanite, you didn't have to follow an elaborate moral code. You just had to put the meat on the altar. This was the mistake that Israel would fall into time and again in their future. They thought they could live and worship however they wanted so long as they kept up with the religious rituals. Third, it was normal. The only people who did not do religion like this in the ancient Near East were the Israelites. For everyone else, though they had different gods with different names and they were in different places, religion was done the same way. So it was normal. Fourth, it was indulgent. Meat was a relative rarity in the ancient world. Not everyone had herds that they could sacrifice. So meat was often eaten only as a part of ritual worship. You would offer your meal, and in some cases your drink to the God, and then enjoy the feast yourself. And as a result, worship took on a bit of a party atmosphere. Gluttony, drunkenness. Fifth, it was erotic. During ritual worship, it was believed that if worshipers took the parts of Baal or Asherah, for example, and had sex, 
It would stimulate the deities in heaven to have sex. And when the gods and goddesses have sex, it meant procreation, which meant earthly blessings, fertility, rain, health, good harvest. This is why, by the way, um, temple prostitution became popular and why God rebukes Israel for it. Okay, so in chapter 12, God is telling Israel what it looks like to love him with heart, soul, and might through their corporate worship gatherings. Now, in looking at the allure of idolatry for Israel, let me draw out two ways this gathering on Sunday morning becomes every bit as idolatrous as those were. Okay? And I'm going to pull these two from looking at the five reasons why Israel would have found Canaanite worship to be alluring. Okay? Two ways this gathering becomes every bit as idolatrous. Number one, using Sunday worship to manipulate God. Manipulation of the gods was built into the ancient pagan system. And we can subtly succumb to this. Attending church can become a you scratch my back if I scratch yours proposition. Maybe we think that if we go to church, God will bless us. If we go to church, maybe our sick loved one will get better. If we go to church, maybe God will give me that promotion at work. If we go to church, maybe I'll have a great week. The moment we approach this gathering in this room on Sundays as if we are scratching God's back so he'll scratch ours, we've become idolaters. Using the Sunday morning worship gathering to manipulate God is the first way we can debase this gathering into an idolatrous one. The second way this gathering becomes idolatrous is approaching Sunday worship for self-pleasure probably noticed this ancient idol worship was tempting because it really was pleasurable for the worshiper it's not surprising they set it up that way it was indulgent and sometimes erotic and we can turn this gathering into that very easily and it happens subtly in a consumer-minded society if we approach this gathering with the question am I being pleased by this rather than in this moment am I pleasing God with what I'm doing thinking and saying we've made this idolatrous the fundamental question every one of us should ask when we gather in this room is not does this please me the fundamental question we need to ask ourselves in this moment am I pleasing God Now, throughout the rest of the chapter, chapter 12, God unpacks for Israel how they can please him in their corporate worship gatherings. First way we love God with heart, soul, and might is by our handling of this gathering on Sunday mornings. Second, theological discernment. Flip over to chapter 13. Verse 1, if a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And I just pause there for a minute. You look at that, that, those statements, and maybe some of us react negatively to this language of prophet, dreamer of dreams, signs and wonders. That verse, those verses need to be understood within the context of Israel's story. Okay, there's nothing in these two verses that would suggest anything is crooked so far. Numbers chapter 12, uh, it's very clear to us that God communicated with his people Israel through dreams. Additionally, they've already seen all kinds of signs and wonders in their escape from Egypt. So there's nothing off so far about this. In fact, it's, it's very credible. 
But keep going. It comes to pass, if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Okay, so here's the point. Someone comes to you and establishes their spiritual theological credibility. First blush, they look legit. But then this person speaks up and says, let us go after other gods. Let's serve them. All the fire alarms within Israel's collective conscience should be going off. It is incumbent on God's people to assess the words of someone who may come across upon first blush as having spiritual, biblical, and theological credibility. Now notice how God connects the assessing of teaching content with love for him. Did you see that in the text? It's a test of their love for him. God is testing his people to see if they love him by their ability to sniff out false teaching. Remember Deuteronomy, love for God is not romanticized. Love for God is expressed in concrete acts of obedience. So here, love for God is expressed in being able to identify false teaching. The question is simple. Can you do that? Can you identify false teaching? There's an implication inside the text that's probably worth drawing out. Bible study, when done from the right heart chemistry, is a concrete act of love for God. God expects his people to be able to assess the teaching content of someone who comes across as legit. The only way you're going to do that is to saturate yourself in God's word. We need to commit, every one of us, to being Berean Christians. Berean Christians. You know what I mean by that? Acts 17. As soon as it was night, the believers set Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Berean Jews were a more noble character than those in Thessalonica. For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. They examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Put that in your head. The Bereans are double and triple checking the apostle Paul to see if what he's saying squares with what's revealed in God's word. Now we live in a golden age of Christian publication and teaching. We have easier access to more books and resources than any, uh, at any other point in human history. But with that blessing and with that perk comes a danger. Okay? There is only one book that is without error, and it's not the book written by your favorite author. Capiche? There is only one book that is without error, and it's not the one written by your favorite author. Not everything people write or teach squares with Scripture. So whenever you're engaging with content, with teaching content, with video content, whatever it is, I hope you have Scripture's lenses on as you take that in. God tests our love for him and our ability to assess the teaching content of those who upon first blush come across as legit. A concrete act of love for God. 
Third, in everyday living, I'm not going to read chapter 14. It's the dietary laws. I'm sure you've come across them in your devotions at some point. You read it and thought, God, what am I supposed to do with this? There is language in there such as this. There are animals you may eat. The ox. Well, that's a relief. The sheep. The goat. Are you hunters? The deer. You may eat that. You shall not eat the camel. The rabbit. The rock badger. You can eat whatever has fins and scales. But don't eat the sea creatures that don't have fins and scales. And on and on it goes. What is going on here? What is going on here? Well, the challenge with the text is that the text itself doesn't come out and explain why the categories are the way they are. Why some foods are prohibited, some are allowed. Theologians have mostly posited two possibilities. The first is that the foods allowed were lower in toxicity, so the primary concern is nutrition. One possibility. The other possibility is the foods prohibited are foods that held particular roles or meaning within facets of foreign religion. I think that makes better sense of the book of Deuteronomy as a whole. One of the repeated themes that you see throughout the book of Deuteronomy is God's concern for his people to assimilate to the culture they're about to inhabit. Keep in mind, they're moving into a land with people already there. They have religious and cultural practices that God wants his people to remain distinct from. Now, what's intriguing about this is the level of distinctiveness God wants from his people. God isn't just concerned with their worship gatherings. He's not just concerned with their ability to to evaluate teaching content. He's also concerned with something as mundane as eating. Remember, Deuteronomy 6, love for God is not primarily an emotion. Love for God is expressed in concrete acts of obedience. Remember Exodus 19 and 20, we are saved by grace, saved to holiness. We are saved by grace and we are saved to distinctiveness. These dietary laws demonstrate that every domain of Israel's life was to exemplify their distinctiveness as the people of God. It's burrowing down into the finest details of their life and to how they were to remain distinct from the people around them. Now, (laughs) how does that work out today? Uh, Mark 7 and Acts 10 clearly teach us God has made all food clean. Praise be to Jesus. Summer's coming. And I have a date with a rack of ribs the size of your face. (laughs) We can eat anything. But does that mean we no longer need to worry about remaining distinct? Are there cultural practices within daily life that maybe we as Christians have become too much like the culture? 
Are there places in daily living where we as Christians have lost our distinctiveness? You would probably answer yes. There are a number of them. Let me mention four. And I may step on some toes as we work through these. The first, newspaper astrologies, horoscopes. Christian, you don't need horoscopes. You don't need newspaper astrologies. You know why? If you're in Christ, even when it's bad, it's good. Even when it's bad, it's good. Second, Sunday morning activities. So let's get our heads around this. Even at the level of eating, God wanted his people to remain distinct from those around them. For the 21st century, even at the level of how we spend our Sunday mornings, we ought to remain distinct from those around us. Your Sunday morning activity should be distinct from that of your lost neighbors. Your Sunday morning activity should be distinct from those of your lost neighbors. There are many things that call for us to be away from this gathering regularly on Sunday mornings. We are to remain distinct as Christians. Third, yoga. It might seem odd that it's on here. The only reason I put it up there because I've been surprised over the last decade how many people have asked me about this. Yoga, okay. I'm guessing that in our fitness clubs, yoga is maybe a, one of the activities. Maybe it's popular. I don't know. I don't go to fitness, class, uh, fitness classes. Uh, but for, for some classes, it's just stretching. It's fine. Great. But classic yoga practices transcendental meditation coming out of the Eastern religions where you're encouraged to empty your mind. But that's not what God encourages us to do, Right? He doesn't encourage us to empty our minds, but to fill them. Meditate on his word day and night. To fill them with thoughts of him and his word to us. So if you want to go stretch, great, go stretch. But have a warehouse of scripture stored up in your heart so you can meditate on that while you stretch. Third, speech. By this I don't just mean verbal speech it comes out of your mouth but particularly what you say in emails or on social media social media is becoming one of the most depressing places to spend time um, because of the brute nastiness of people there Christian if you can stomach that and you want to continue to have a presence there can you be different from that can you be different from that don't be a sniper on social media taking your shots from the shelter of your computer build up don't tear down be different be distinct be salt and light in the digital venue of social media Ephesians 4 do not let any any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths none but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Another way our speech becomes too much like the cultures through our proneness to be complainers. This was Israel's problem in Exodus, which we looked at a few weeks ago. Guess what Israel's problem in the book of Numbers is? Complaining. 
the repetition of their problem and their proneness to complaining should be an indicator to us that maybe God's people have a proclivity for this. For whatever reason, we are susceptible and vulnerable to defaultly moving into this posture of complaining and grumbling. Philippians 2, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do some things, do a few things, do most things, do a lot of things, do a ton of things, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Deuteronomy 12 to 16 is unpacking Deuteronomy 6. The primary concern is what does it look like to love God with heart, soul, and might? We've looked at three life arenas where we can express our love for God with heart, soul, and might. I want to conclude with this one letter. It's, it's the epistle to Diognetus, which is a second century letter. And it was written uh, by someone to someone who was believed to have been a lower-level Roman official named Diognetus. And what's fascinating about the letter is the perspective these folks had on Christians in the second century. It's kind of like an external, outside-the-bubble look at how Christians lived in the second century. Let me read it to you. Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. So in that sense, they have a lot in common with the people around them. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own. So they weren't reclusive. They were integrationists. They didn't create separate societies. They don't speak a, a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. With regard to dress, food, and manner of life in general... They follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it is Greek or foreign. So there was a, an intelligibility to the way they lived. However, and yet, there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. It's as if they looked forward to some other world to come or life to come that didn't make them hold on to the current one so steadfastly. They play their full role as citizens. They participated in society and culture, maybe politics, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. At this time, there was a lot of governmental and social pressure exerted on Christians. So they're participating still, however they can, in spite of being persecuted by the very society, culture, governmental system that they were participating in. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. Infanticide was a very common practice in second century Rome. If you didn't want the child, you, you threw the child out on the street. Very common, common, not, out, not, not an outlier, common in Roman society. But this writer is saying Christians don't do that. They don't expose their children. They share their meals with people. They open their homes, but they don't share their wives. Sexual promiscuity was rampant in Roman society. Sexual freedom permitted to men in the second century was um, outrageous. Men were permitted to have prostitutes, concubines, whatever else. 
women were expected to stay sexually faithful in the marriage. The writer is saying these Christians, they don't do that. They're very different than we, than we Romans are. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They may not be well off, many of them, but they are generous with what they have. They're totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. Historians have noted for decades that the level of distinctiveness with which early Christians lived had a significant impact on the rise of Christianity during the first three centuries. This counterculture was attractive to some people, and they wanted in on it. In other words, there was something incredibly missional about the depth of holiness with which they lived their lives. Their holiness was influential missionally. Sometimes we separate those two things as if one doesn't have anything to do with the other. That's not true. We look at that Exodus 19. We can see that in the Great Commission in Matthew 28 too. So our distinctiveness as the people of God contributes to the rise of Christianity. This is what God does. This is what God does when he calls a people to himself. Now let me finish by reading the final section of Deuteronomy 6. You look at that and you think, boy, those are, that's tough. It feels weighty. How do we, how can I live like that? It feels though we're handcuffed maybe but I want to set the call in its context okay. Deuteronomy 6 greatest commandment love the Lord your God with all your heart soul might Deuteronomy 12 to 16 unpacks what that means look at how Deuteronomy 6 ends verse 20 when your son asks you in time to come what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. Do you see the grace element in it? And someone asks, why do you worship that way? Why do you exercise theological discernment like that? Why do you live with this daily distinctiveness? Why? The answer, God saved us by his grace. God doesn't save us because we do these things. We do these things because God has saved us. Let's pray. Gracious, loving, saving God, we, your people, are meant to be a counterculture, standing in contrast to the way in which the world typically works. We need your empowering spirit to shape us into that. It's, it's not a matter of brute willpower. And so, God, I pray that as our hearts are increasingly melted by what you have done for us in Jesus, we would commit to living in a manner worthy of the calling we have received. 
I pray others would see our way of life and turn to you in worship. Thank you, God, that because of your love and your grace, you call us sons, you call us daughters. You've brought us into your family and nothing can separate us from that love. As an expression of our love for you with heart, soul, and might, God, I pray, I pray that our approach to these Sunday morning gatherings, the way in which we evaluate the content of teaching, the way in which we live our daily lives, all of that, all of that would be done with a posture of wanting to please you. In response to this, we worship you. Remind us of who we are. Remind us of all that you've done for us that we can respond to you in holy living. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.